Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome back to A Freedom of Ideas. Last time, we started our discussion on Locke as a sort of founding thinker in a school of thought that progressed over a couple centuries and led us eventually to folks like John Stuart Mill, not to mention many of the most foundational and the folks that I, I, I contend have become kind of the source of our instinctive notions of freedom that we maintain to this day. Now, we talked about Locke's historical era in this transition point from the relative stability of Elizabeth's classical monarchy in England through to the enthronement of William and Mary and the beginning of England's truly constitutional monarchy. We talked about what seemed like Locke's attempt to work from the so-called first principles of thinking about government, which led him first to reject the notion of inherited monarchy as a stable foundation for just government, meaning monarchs were not placed on the throne by, by God or by some bloodline tracing back to the biblical Adam or any such other such metaphysically absolute justification. Rather, monarchs were one of a number of features of government that had evolved, to use a term Locke himself would not have, have used, but features of government that had, had evolved as a sort of bulwark against utter chaos in the form of the quote-unquote state of war, in which every person was opposed to every other and only might ever made right. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about that so-called state of war as we move forward. We're going to talk a lot about it when it comes to Hobbes. Of course, it's, you know, if we look back at our actual human history, we would see that we didn't emerge from anything even vaguely resembling a state of war where everybody was fighting everybody else. Neither did we likely emerge from what Locke referred to as the state of nature, where everyone existed in perfect equality and harmony. But these are kind of the figurative grounding points of Locke's philosophy. And for the purpose of this discussion, we're going to accept them as written, even though, as I say, we certainly should not accept them as verifiable history. So again, as we look back on this, humankind started out in, in Locke's history, as he states it to us, humankind started out in a state of nature in which the inherent goodness of humankind in the absence of outside corrupting influence that natural goodness simply ensured peace and equality and stability. It is only when any kind of violence or injustice or force of one person against another is introduced, if, say, we're in the state of nature and you try to overpower me, to take my stuff, or, or even to subjugate me, well, it's because of that, it's because of that kind of action that we then enter into this state of war or at least the threat of the state of war. And it's because of that threat of a state of war, essentially in which, okay, you attack me, I attack you back. Suddenly, you can kind of imagine this kind of disease spreading throughout our state of nature in which everybody goes from equality and peace to everybody suddenly being in conflict and everything being determined by who is the strongest in any given conflict. So it's in response to this state of war, then, this, uh, beyond saying it's imperfect, it's this wholly corrupt and wholly destructive state of mankind. It's in response to this state of war that humanity then begins to build all of the structures of what we would call 
civil society and all of the structures of government. Again, Locke did not use the term civil society. I use it because I think it's a good it's a good stand-in. I, I certainly think we understand what it means, and it encompasses this general area of things that Locke is talking about. Now, again, these structures of civil society and government, they are imperfect. They are potentially and almost always actually corrupt, and they must always either restrict a little too much freedom in good people or allow a little too much freedom and therefore mischief from evil people. Or in most cases, it probably manages to do both of those things at once in different ways. But still, in comparison to the state of war, everybody against everybody might makes right, at least this compromised state of civil society allows for freedom, allows for justice, allows for all of it imperfect, but these structures at least allow humankind to go about their business in a relatively peaceful fashion a lot of the time, even if not all of the time. So, to pick the story back up where we left off, we'll begin with Locke's description of what, again, we call civil society. Not him, but we do. One idea to keep in mind in all this, and, and this is another piece of terminology that Locke would not use, but which I believe is illustrative in, in considering his thinking, is that civil society is the kind of mediate point between the extreme states of war on one hand and nature on the other. It's not nearly so perfect as the state of nature, but, of course, once the possibility of evil and violence and slavery, the possibility of one person trying to enforce power over another unfairly and purely for their own gain, once you have all that imperfection introduced into the state of nature, it's civil society that keeps everything from devolving into an absolute state of war, as Locke understood it. As such, it is imperfect. Civil society is imperfect. It is susceptible of corruption. It will never be precisely the right balance of control that prevents evil and freedom that allows humans to be their best selves unhindered. It is a properly human endeavor, meaning one that could always stand to be improved, but at least it is not usually as bad as our very worst natures might lead us to become, again, in the state of war. But let's, let's hear from Locke, quote, To avoid this state of war, wherein there is no appeal but to heaven, and wherein every the last differences apt to end where there is no authority to decide between the contenders, is one great reason of men's putting themselves into society and quitting the state of nature. For where there is an authority, a power on earth from which relief can be had by appeal, there the continuance of the state of war is excluded, and the controversy is decided by that power. Unquote. Now to state this a bit more simply, if I am living happily in a state of nature, but you come along and you steal my, I don't know, what, what are you going to say? You steal my bird guide, right? Because, you know, if we're all in a state of nature, we're probably going to really all need our bird guides, and um, uh, so that's going to be important. So you come along and you steal my bird guide, or you do something even more extreme, like try to subjugate me altogether. If there is no higher civil authority, then your violence to me puts us into this state of war. We revert to a pure power dynamic, wherein there is no limit on the power that I will apply to responding to your theft 
and there is no limit to the level of force you will apply to resisting that response. Aside, of course, from the natural respective limits of our strengths to struggle against one another. So, in essence, we might end up killing each other over petty theft, and as we have other people surrounding us who begin to take our part, we might drag the entirety of every person in this state of nature down with us into this state of war. So the state of nature, wonderful as it may be, simply cannot incorporate or adjust to injustice or immorality of any kind. So the second I either perpetrate or am the victim of violence or theft or an attempt to subjugate another person, the state of nature collapses in a sense and is replaced with this almost purely brutal world of unrestrained violence. And it is from this clear problem that the need for some sort of civil society is born. And as we've spent quite a bit of time on this already, I'm going to rush a little bit through the next few steps. So how do we build our society of laws and government, of earthly power that can moderate this chaos and possible violence of the state of war? Now, please recall, again, speaking theoretically, we are creating this model of what we call civil society from nothing here. We are beginning, we're, we're just trying to emerge from the state of war. There are no structures of society, no structures of government. Locke is going to lead us to understand how we put these things together. We can take nothing for granted as we seek to define these first principles of civil society. Now, the first evident notion we can use to build the structures of civil government is property. Beginning from the state of nature, I begin at least with the property of my body, if nothing else. And I can accrue further property by crafting objects from nature. I can accrue property by improving the land with buildings and cultivation. So the materials of the world plus labor equals property. Now, in the next few episodes, we're going to go into a deep dive into how much of the thinking of folks like Locke and Mill and most of the rest of these other Europe European folks, these concepts that we all think of as being so foundational that they're now almost second nature to the way we think about the problems of freedom and, and government and civil society. We're going to try and piece those together and see how differently it might be possible to consider these ideas differently beyond the scope of any, any of these details. So what, what do I mean by that? So for example, we're going to ask what it, what, what it might look like if we brought very different kinds of minds, very different assumptions, very different experiences, very different expectations to the task of answering some of these questions. These questions that Locke was struggling with, of, okay, how do we build civil society from nothing? How do we, in principle, put the pieces together to make sense of these structures of, of civil society? And if all this sounds a little ethereal to you, that we're going to try and bring different minds to bear, like, or am I going to go get a, a, a guest, you know, Martian to come in and say how they do it there? You know, I get it. It sounds a little strange now, but I think you'll see that as we move forward, this is going to end up being surprisingly tangible to us. In, in any event, it's a whole thing, and you're just going to have to trust me that it's going to make sense once, once we're into it. But in that spirit... Let's just take a minor, little, tiny, little side adventure here. Take a moment to consider how significant it is that the first positive foundational element that Locke wants us to consider 
as again, we are creating from scratch the theoretical constructs of civil society. The very first building block he sets in place is the notion of property. Now, in asking you to think about that, I am not arguing for or against it. I am not saying it is right or wrong. Now, truly, if, if you look at the way we understand civil society now, this is either a shockingly brilliant observation, as it so perfectly resonates with so much of what we understand civil society to be at this point, you're, again, right up to this day, either that, it's either brilliantly perceptive or it's brilliantly influential insofar as it has set the stage for thinking that continues to be shaped by this fundamental presumption up to this day. So I just want to consider, and, and by the way, probably, probably it's both. Probably it's, it's an observation of something that's very real and very viable as, as something, as a, as a fact about the world. And it's also something which, because of the way the observation was made, it has just like any foundation, the foundation of any structure is going to dictate what the rest of that, that structure looks like. Because of the way Locke came to this formulation, it has certainly influenced everything that was built on top of this foundation. So what I want to do is, is, is I just want us to pause here for a second to consider what it means for everything that comes next, both in Locke as we follow him down his line of reasoning but also in our overall understanding of how we as humans create and conduct civil society. How does the fact that Locke begins with property as a concept affect and sway everything that comes afterward? And could there have been an alternative? Is there any other factor that we might have started with aside from property? In any event, that's a simple minor aside, just something that we can contemplate. And again, it's, I'm not saying that it's not entirely possible, even likely, that Locke is absolutely right, and there is no alternative, that this is the most sound foundation on which we can begin to understand what civil society is and how it operates. Either way, at this point for us, this sort of high tower of European thought that we still live in and that we're still renovating and adding stories to and redecorating and, and moving stuff in and out of, that's, that tower still rests on this exact same foundation that Locke is laying out for us here. So again, perhaps it simply had to be that way. Perhaps Locke is absolutely right and highly perceptive and identified an absolute truth about the world. Or perhaps he created a truth which we continue to build on. Or perhaps it's a little bit of both. Either way, just a little fun thought, thought experiment for us here. I assure you it is not a sort of slow segue into Leninism or anything like that, so don't worry, just a little something to contemplate. And anyway, taking the next step in Locke's logic, you see how fast we're going now? He said, boom, just zoom. We're like, we're on a superhighway now. We're moving so fast. So taking the next step in Locke's logic, if I live in a community, if I live in a society, then probably every aspect of my economic and social life, it's not just going to be a matter of combining materials and labor to make property, right? A society of any level of complexity is going to start introducing things like division of labor. Because in a society, every person, every household possibly, 
it, it does not need to be, and it probably should not be from uh, a point of creating economies, creating efficiencies. Every household should not be a completely independent economic unit. Every family should not have to create or grow everything it needs directly by hand. Now, perhaps instead, I can get very good at making wooden planks and posts, and you can get very good at tilling a field. Then we can trade those two forms of labor to our mutual benefit. But of course, that trade requires further codification of rules, right? We have to understand and describe the relative value of things. So go further down that same line of thinking, and, and you realize that, golly, wouldn't it be handy to have another set of possessions, another type of possessions entirely, whose only purpose is to represent the value of labor and usable materials and finished goods. Maybe it would be even better if those objects didn't do stuff like, like spoil, like, like, you know, food tends to spoil, you know, and other objects that are practically very useful to us, but which, again, kind of have a, uh, you know, a quite literally a shelf life. So maybe it'd be nice if these these objects, these objects that represent value, maybe maybe they just should never spoil. They should be, we should be able to keep those and hold on to those forever, or trade them, knowing that their value will never diminish. Thus, instead of having to pay you back with planks for the time you spent cultivating my field, I can pay you back in the equivalent value of money, right? And yet more rules are crafted to apply to these interactions and on and on and on it goes. And we can see how each one of these strands of things that we take as we assume these things are basically second nature to the way society operates. But if we introduce them for the first time, we see this, this, this web of complexity growing and growing and growing, but doing so in a way that we can really make sense of because of how Locke has kind of started us down this this building process from his foundational first principles. Now, it's all this kind of activity, notions of property, the value of labor, the ability to trade, all of that begins to codify the structure of governance in society. In short, all of this economic activity essentially introduces the need for law. Remember, because you're running around doing stuff like stealing my bird books, what if I'm, you know, I've got a bag of gold or, or, or all these wonderful planks? I mean, if I can't trust you with my bird book, can I possibly trust you with those without some higher earthly power to which we can plead our case when a dispute inevitably arises? So here's Locke on that point. Quote, For law in its true notion is not so much the limitation as the direction of a free and intelligent agent to his proper interest, and prescribes no further than is for the general good of those under that law. Could they be happier without it, the law as a useless thing would of itself vanish, and that ill deserves the name of confinement, which hedges us in only from bogs and precipices. So that, however it may be mistaken, the end of law is not to abolish or restrain, but to preserve and enlarge freedom. For in all the states of created beings capable of laws, where there is no law, there is no freedom. For liberty is to be free from restraint and violence from others, which cannot be where there is no law. 
But freedom is not, as we are told, a liberty for every man to do what he wishes. For who could be free when every other man's humor might domineer over him? But a liberty to dispose and order as he wish his person, actions, possession, and his whole property within the allowance of these laws under which he is, and therein not to be subject to the arbitrary will of another, but freely follow his own. So that's a lot, but uh, it was also a little repetitious, so I think you get the idea. For Locke, as he sees it, law and civil society are there to, to it, how did he say it exactly? It ill deserves the name of confinement that hedges us in only from bogs and precipices, right? We, you know, we don't say, oh my God, there's a, there's a fence that around this boggy marsh with these snakes and alligators in it. How, how dare they take, take away my freedom to wander into this bog? We call that a protection, right? We call that something being done for us. And that's how he wants us to view law. And he also has that very interesting phrase, if we could be happier without it, any given law that is a useless law, it'll just disappear. Now, maybe we've come to see that that doesn't, you know, maybe that's not exactly how it works, but We'll put that as a little asterisk of an exception here, but fundamentally we see Locke's vision of civil society and of law being one wherein a structure is created not to confine us, but to give us the space and the freedom to essentially live the kind of lives we want to live. So for Locke, if we look to the natural, rational origin of law, we see not you know, some kind of an, an attempt to exert power, but we, we see rather the need to moderate the, the exertion of power. Law doesn't confine humankind, but rather creates space in which it can be free. Now, again, we'll see this same idea in Mill a couple centuries later. Now, of course, there's also a limit to that, right? There's a balance. Laws and governments uh, that overreach, that dictate too much of human behavior, of course cease to create an open space for human freedom. And this is another one of our eternal questions. We always know what's obviously too extreme in these things. So a, a police state is, is, is too extreme. Violent anarchy is too extreme. But we will, I assume, always debate exactly how to create this, this balance in a way that we structure our government and societal systems. But let's pause, step back from that more modern kind of debate, and just remember how revolutionary all of this really is. And I don't mean, by the way, revolutionary in the hyperbolic sense of new and exciting, like, uh, you know, this new app for my phone that I use to decide what flavor of ice cream best matches my socks. I mean revolutionary in, in really the more classical sense, as presenting active opposition to the real power of the existing state. Now, it's worth reminding everyone here that Locke had been exiled from England for his views. And though these treatises were, were published under the hopefully more enlightened reign of William and Mary, he nonetheless published them anonymously. So we understand here, as Locke is thinking about this, how revolutionary he understands all of this to be. Now, all of this, of course, it's an expression of the nature of justifiable political power that was by no means in keeping with the realities of Locke's time. We talked about this previously, but Locke had to begin his, his entire effort here 
His first step was to disprove the divine right of kings. Now, part and parcel, typically part and parcel of that notion of the divine right of kings was also the idea that the sort of presumption that those with the least power would have the most obligation. Those people who had the least power would have the most obligation to people with more power. And those with the most power regarded themselves as fundamentally having transcended obligations of any kind. Now, Locke clearly undercuts this notion of what we might call a pure royal prerogative, i.e., I am the king, God gave me my power, and thus it is the will of God that I use my power as I please and without regard for the people over whom I rule by right. That was an idea that emerged from the state of war. That was in the Dark Ages, but for Locke, it's not either natural or ideal. Real valid power for Locke derives from what Rousseau would later call the social contract, an implicit agreement by which citizens consent to live in a society of laws in which naturally there are people in power to ensure those laws are enacted justly and applied fairly, but wherein those people in power are not in absolute power and they themselves are subject to the same laws. But even for this stage in history, there is what seems to me to be an interesting push toward, you might call it law and order in Locke, although obviously don't, uh, that has connotations we don't want to introduce here, but a real notion of the necessity of law that Locke sees. But one of the problems that that means Locke has to solve is how, you know, aside from the state of war, which of course was, is that's kind of the threat on one side of the spectrum, right? Of like, how badly things could go if we don't have civil society. But Locke had spent all this time earlier talking about the state of nature and talking about how in it there was a kind of natural, rational freedom for all of mankind. So how is it exactly that, aside from purely the sort of negative threat of the, the state of war, how is it exactly that we get to a point of having mankind, humankind, excuse me, being naturally a part of this, this civil society, this, this state of society, this state of government. So let's hear from Locke on that point. Quote, Every man being, as has been shown, naturally free, and nothing being able to put him into subjection to any earthly power but only his own consent, it is now to be considered what shall be understood to be a sufficient declaration of a man's consent to make him subject to the laws of any government. Nobody doubts, but an express consent of any man entering into society makes him a member of that society, a subject of that government. The difficulty is, what ought to be looked upon as a tacit consent, and how far that tacit consent shall bind? i.e. how far anyone shall be looked upon to have consented and thereby submitted to any government where he has made no expression of it at all. And to this I say, that every man that has any possessions or enjoyment of any part of the dominions of any government does thereby give his tacit consent and is as far forth obligated to obedience to the laws of that government during such enjoyment as anyone under it. Unquote. 
So that sounds like pretty strong uh, law and order stuff from Locke here, right? If you own anything, and remember, the first stone in the foundation of Locke's ideas of civil society is the fact that we own ourselves. We own our physical personhood. That is, in a sense, a possession. If you own anything, if you are in any way a member of society, then you have given your tacit consent to be governed by the rules of civil society. So, you know, I guess we can go ahead and cancel that order of t-shirts with a print of Locke wearing a beret and kind of looking up mystically toward the future. Now, I'll say as an aside that there is something interesting to me in Locke that Locke himself does not address. And I, I, I hinted at this before, but I, I want to focus more on it. And perhaps I, I focus, I was at, perhaps I'm inclined to focus more on it because I look at Locke's work through the lens of later work. But he seems to suggest, to me, he seems to suggest a scenario wherein civil society exists as a kind of mediate point between the absolutes of the state of nature and the state of war. So we've got those two things on the far end of, of the scale of, of the possible human experience, and civil society is kind of what results from the tension between those two things. It requires the capacity in us, which ostensibly is truly good, as well as the potential in us of that which is most evil. Again, and this is not a point he lingered on, but it's one that always strikes me as I go back and read through the second treatise. Now, for Locke, though, and here's what's interesting, and I think we need to pay attention to this. These two impulses, the extreme of good and the extreme of e evil, these two impulses are not inherently equal. Now, if left to our own devices, if we are not swayed by outside forces, Locke suggests that humankind trends toward goodness. Now, Locke was heavily influenced by another guy named Richard Hooker, who wrote in the late 1500s and whose writings were almost entirely built around the presumption that man's nature is one of fairly simple goodness. He suggests in one passage that the golden rule, you know, the golden rule, and he doesn't call it that, but that's what it is, essentially the notion that we should do unto others as we hope they will do unto us. He goes so far as to suggest that that is something like a central, almost a native instinct in our makeup as human beings. And I want to highlight this. At the risk of sounding a bit too pessimistic, I do actually find this troubling. This is a presumption that lurks not only in Locke, but also in Mill and in many other of these folks as we read them. <laughs> not so much in Hobbes. Hobbes was pretty immune to this, uh, to this little problem of, of having too much optimism about human, human nature. But in any event, most of these other folks operate from this basic presumption of a trend toward goodness in humankind. They believe that humanity was fundamentally, inherently good. So if a child grew up entirely ensconced in nature with no human influence, it would naturally be good. It would naturally be kind. It would presume equality. And again, all according to Hooker, but Locke sort of followed him in this path it would naturally have an instinct to, to share. It would have an instinct toward justice and, again, equality and reason and all these other great things. And now, let me be fair to Locke and to others in his tradition. From my perspective, if I, if I consider where Locke is in history right now, if I was looking at the same history he was looking at, how recent it was, 
The fact that I that society had just barely begun to claw itself out of the the nasty brutishness of the European Dark Ages. If I lived to see two wars fought over whether or not a king should have any real limitations whatsoever on his power, well then I guess I'd, I you know my tendency would be to be a lot more pessimistic about the fundamental nature of humankind. But Locke and so many others in his tradition. Locke saw the angle of the trend, not the squalor of its origins. Now, I would assume that Locke is influenced by his religious beliefs to some extent in this regard, but he sees humanity emerging out of the Dark Ages, emerging out of the Middle Ages, progressing through the time of Elizabeth, showing more progress through the two English revolutions toward this constitutional monarchy, And he further sees this as a process in which humankind's true nature is being revealed. Now, importantly, this is not, and this is, I'm going to split hairs here a little bit, but this is not so much humankind refining its nature, but rather it's the systems of government and society and all the rest of it slowly transforming to better reflect what our actual true nature really is, which would be practically perfect, not absolutely, of course, but it would be practically perfect if it weren't for all of these, you know, the the societal and governmental corruption and interference and all the problems that result from what happens when you need something like a civil society to keep the, uh, you know, the potential of something like a state of war at bay. So this all, again, becomes a kind of a trend line pointing upward as we slowly become more and more and more rational, as we slowly begin to follow more and more and more what our actual human essence should be all about. Now, I certainly can't say what Locke might have imagined for the possibilities of this new idea of constitutional monarchy with this sort of semi-representative parliamentary system and its checks and balance system. I mean, did was he looking ahead and imagining what we would think of as a more Republican-style democracy or the evolution of a constitutional monarchy to its current state in which royalty, you know, I'm talking about England here, of course, in the current state of constitutional monarchy in which royalty is very nearly not entirely, but very nearly simply an expensive figurehead. Of course, I have no idea what Locke was looking ahead and imagining when he was thinking about these things. And I certainly also have no idea, although it'd be fascinating to see, what if Locke could just start completely from scratch? What if you said, okay, buddy, you know, here's day one. Nothing is in place right now. Don't tell us what you think is already there. Tell us what you think should be there and build it from scratch. What would that look like? But with all that, I can, I think, again, sort of understand why he would have held on to this this notion that humankind had this kind of inherent spirit, this inherent, inherent notion of what is good and what is right and what is rational, and that we're constantly being drawn ever so slowly, and of course with fits and starts, and you know we make a little progress and we fall back a little bit, but if you look at the basic trend line, we're always moving toward the good, the rational. Again, these things that are to 
to Locke's way of thinking, very much a part of our inherent human nature. Now, again, I don't want to sound like too much of a pessimist here, but I do think this is a problem. I am honestly wary of the notion that humankind is inherently good, that it's inherently driven toward improvement, inherently driven toward progress, and this kind of slow but inexorable march toward the fulfillment of our better, more rational, more more egalitarian natures. It's a beautiful idea. I, I, I love it from that sense. I love it the way I, I enjoy poetry and, and a good, you know, hopeful ending on an upbeat kind of movie. But if we're going to say that this is what humankind actually is, if this is going to be the baseline of our understanding of humankind and therefore of society and government and all the rest of it, well, that's where I think it becomes somewhat dangerous. Now, my concern, if I had to boil it all down, my concern is this. If we assume that humankind is built around an inherent pull toward what is good and right, then I worry that we cease to be vigilant enough in ensuring that we are actually doing the work that we need to do to move toward what is good and what is right and what is rational. If we read Locke the wrong way, if we take this too much for granted, then Locke, to some extent, gives us license to assume that we can simply coast toward betterment when, in fact, we're on flat ground. Everything is purely neutral, in my humble opinion, and we're not going anywhere unless we work for it. Now, imagine if we're building a house. Take this as our analogy. And we design everything about that house with the assumption that we're building it on a gentle upward slope. Well... Once we build that house, if there is no slope, we'll find that what we've built is entirely adoritic, right? And I believe that what we see in Locke, will, and we'll see this again in Mill when we come back to him and his thinking on free speech and essentially the role of reason in civil society as well. I think we see this in both these thinkers, and I think we see it in a number of the other thinkers of this era. And don't get me wrong, it is a lovely idea this notion of the human species having some sort of multi-generational homing instinct toward the good, the beautiful, the rational, the true, all that good stuff. It's a lovely idea, but it doesn't make for a level house. So now I need us to keep one other curious idea halfway in mind. The notion of man in a sort of perfect state of nature, absent any notion of unfairness or violence or any, thus any need for things like civil society. Or who needs laws if everybody is just inherently good and fair and nonviolent and, and recognizing of all people's equality? Now, Locke tells us that this is the state that remains most natural to humankind, and it's only because of outside influence that we're not permitted to live that way. Now, let's be clear. If we compare this mistake that I'm saying I believe Locke is making to the mistake that we said Mill was making, and to remind us, that mistake was that you could have this notion of nearly absolute individual freedom, but that that same notion is somehow entwined with an exemption that we can apply to people that we don't judge to be as civilized or as mature as a society as we are, and that we can therefore just go ahead and submit those folks to despotism and we can completely remove their freedom because, well, they're just not on the same level we are. Obviously, that idea is an idea that you can link directly 
with centuries of human suffering. Uh, so that has a, a very much more tangible problem with it, right? And we're, we're justified in thinking that that is a much more dangerous idea. Now, let's pause so that we can weave together what we've been talking about here with what we've been building toward in our prior episodes and what we're going to keep building on for the next few episodes. To summarize where we've been before we started our discussion on Locke, we have this particular faculty of reason that is developing in the course of European thinking. We could trace parts of this development all the way back to the Greeks, though it's certainly influenced by, you would say it's fundamentally changed by the thinking of the European Middle Ages. For philosophers in what we might call this classical period of English and European philosophy, from roughly the Renaissance until right around Mill's time, after which you know, everything changes, but we're not going to get into that right now. But for the folks in this period of thinking, there's a, this real faith in the power of reasoning, right? Reason, uh, and what we might further specify is this very particular European brand of reasoning. According to these folks, when this brand of reasoning is used correctly, it's uniquely capable of propelling us toward truth and understanding in science, in philosophy, in morality, in any area of human endeavor where we're seeking a clearer understanding of the truth. If we're after truth, so goes the, the, the view of these folks, if we're after truth, European reasoning is absolutely the way to get there. It's probably the only way to get there. Now, of course, folks like Locke and Mill would not have called this quote-unquote European reasoning. They would just thought of it as reasoning, as a simple universal process. It was just their very good luck, of course, that they happened to be living in the place where this one particular style of inquiry and understanding that was the one correct style of inquiry and understanding was so prevalently employed. So you're just great historical uh, luck of the draw there for these folks. Little sarcasm and you'll excuse me. For the vast majority of thinkers in this period and place, there's, there's an idea that reason represents the only way to really arrive at truth. And further, that there's only one way. So there's only one way to conduct reasoning, to conduct it successfully. So if I'm following a rational argument and you're doing the same and somehow we end up at different or contradictory conclusions, that means that one of us has used this faculty wrong. One of us started with faulty premises or used misleading evidence or just made a mistake in our chain of reasoning. Reason cannot be used correctly, really correctly, and end up with contradictory or what might seem like irrational conclusions. Because reason is a path, right? It's a single path toward what is really, purely true. I mean, if you want to use a, a visual analogy, picture a mountain. The very top of that mountain is absolute truth, and this particular kind of reason is the one path up that mountain, at least as far as these folks are concerned. Now, at the end of this path, at the very top of the mountain, presumably up over top of the top of the mountain, for most of these folks, again, Locke, Mill, and others in this classical European philosophical tradition, for most of these folks at the very top of this path is God. Now, God, of course, is, is surely the possessor of pure, ultimate truth. 
God knows exactly what freedom is, right? For example, so he wouldn't have to be going through all the stuff that we're going through, asking all these questions, trying to hem in definitions, considering different ideas. He has the one exact perfect definition of freedom, of goodness, of truth, of uh, what have you, the meaning of life. It's all there. That's the pure ultimate truth. God knows exactly what is right, exactly what is good. Now, of course, we mortal human beings can't ever get to God's level of perfect understanding. But the key thing to recall is that there is that true, pure, single truth, that pure, absolute understanding. And reason, this faculty of reason, is how we are going to get as close to the truth as mortal creatures could possibly ever be. But if reason is a single path, and remember, there's only one ultimately right way to conduct reason, only one ultimately right path up that mountain. If reason is that single path, if that's the case, well, then what are we naturally going to start doing? We're going to start looking for signs of progress. We're going to be looking to see whether or not we're moving the correct in the correct direction on that path. We're going to look to make sure that we're moving toward truth, not away from it. We're going to look for signs that we've been moving in the right direction, coming closer to that one perfect truth. Now, another thing we have to remember in all this is that there's a fine and often very unclear line between where I believe that I am personally, how far have I progressed on this path toward truth, and where my society as a whole is along that same path. Now, of course, we've said many, many times that not everyone in England between Locke and Mill's time is engaged in, you know, obviously these intense, rigorous philosophical attempts to find perfect, pure reasoning and truth. As is always the case, that's not what you call a popular task to engage in. And yet, if I'm Locke in his time, or Mill 200 years later, chances are that I can look at the trend line of history And we're going to keep this very, very simple. We're going to put our blinders on here. We're going to say we're only looking at English history. And then we're going to put on actually another set of blinders that prevents us from seeing and assessing and including what England is doing to the rest of the world at various points on this timeline. We're only going to look at what's happening within England proper. So if I'm either Locke or Mill or whoever else, and I'm, I'm going to look back at the history of England, just England, from, say, 800 to 1800, well, we're going to declare that, yes, our entire society, and when we can view evidence of this, our entire society is moving on this trend line toward greater rationality, greater maturity. Now, remember, how how would Mill put it? This society is becoming more mature. It is developing. It is moving toward rationality and freedom. Most anyone in England in 1850 would have looked at this same history from, say, again, picking pseudo-arbitrary numbers, but say 800 to 1800, they're going to look at that history and call it real, tangible, obvious progress. Progress in government, progress in equality, progress in education, progress in the economy. Really, you name it. You look at any one of these indicators, if we, again, look in this narrow way, we are going to see that progress occurring over the course of that history. And while I am very hesitant to start comparing societies and ranking them with scores, I will say that I have a fair amount of sympathy for the the notion that England in 1850 
would have taken some very positive strides since the England of, say, Cromwell and the Protectorate. So I, I would agree that, yes, there have been many indications of very real progress. But like I say, comparative sociology is a, is a fraught endeavor, to say the very least, and one that's only likely to actually reduce our understanding. So let's get back to our main point here. So thinking again of these trend lines, the individual striving toward reason that we see with most philosophers in this place and period, and the overall sense that at least these people themselves saw their entire society on a trend line toward improvement. All of this is why we introduced Locke and his work. Partially, of course, it's to give us the general historical and philosophical context that helps us make a little more sense of Mill and, and everyone else, all the other work that's going on in this period. But as Locke pertains to our specific argument, we see him at a different point on this path toward the goal of ongoing rational development, both on the individual level and on the societal level. So again, if we're picturing this path up the mountain, we can, we can kind of imagine Locke closer toward the bottom third, but progressing. And we can, and I should say, we can imagine his society in a similar way. Progress is being made, but the kinds of struggles, the kind of progress that's being made, very different than what's happening 200 years later. Also different than what would have been happening two or 400 years before. So we can see both with Locke and with his historical circumstances the beginning of a trend line, or at least an earlier point on that trend line, whereas we look at Mill, we look at where Mill's society is, and we see both of them having progressed further on that single path. Now, again, this is not necessarily the interpretation I agree with. Actually, it, it most certainly is not. But for these folks, thinking about this one single rational path, we have to kind of imagine that this is how they're seeing it. They're seeing that their efforts are step-by-step step leading them in the right direction and that both on a societal level and on an individual level is all rooted in the use of this capacity, this European capacity for reasoning and the way it's being put to use in these, in these questions and in society as a whole. Now, looking at Locke also allows us to identify some of the content of this rationality, if you will, Meaning, by, by looking at Locke, we begin to develop a clearer sense of how European reasoning progressed and what kinds of things it was concerned with, most concerned with, what sort of shaped this faculty of reason and what are some of the hallmarks of what meant the most to it and to the people practicing it. So, for example, as we discussed, this centrality of this notion of property, of ownership, of contract. Now, on the, on the one hand, we discussed that this observation makes Locke, you know, in, in this kind of proto-capitalist era that he's in, it makes Locke seem quite prophetic when we consider how civil society and the economy have continued to emerge and develop since his time. Now, we could argue alternately that by making this observation and structuring his view of society in this way, Locke actually played a role in making it so, in making it such that property and contract and all these other concepts were so central to society. So he's either predicting the future to some extent in making these observations about property and contract and ownership and everything else, or he's essentially shaping the future. And as, as I think we discussed, it's kind of a mix of the two, right? It's, it's a little bit of a real understanding of the workings of the societies that was developing, 
And it's also kind of the fact that his work was continually referred back to by everyone else who was later either implementing the aspects of civil society or continuing this line of thinking and reasoning that he was on. And I should say that this particular observation in Locke, the way he describes the emergence of ownership, which I'll reiterate in just a second, that's gotten a lot of attention from folks who are thinking about actually pretty similar things to what we've been thinking about, namely asking the question, how did the structure of thinking in Europe end up influencing and affecting the world as that thinking both fueled and shaped the nature of imperialism over the course of the next few centuries. One thinker, uh, Cory Doctorow, wrote, wrote a fantastic article essentially observing that Locke's dynamic. Now, again, let's just reiterate the dynamic of the very earliest stages of ownership emerging in Locke's thinking. He's essentially saying that we take natural resources, things that occur in the world, you know, <laughs> trees, land, water, all, all that kind of great stuff, things created by God, but which are not otherwise owned by other people already, we take those natural resources, we commit labor to them, so we clear a field, we, we cut down some trees, we turn the trees into building materials, we build a house, so we've taken those natural resources, we've combined them with human labor and ingenuity, and as a consequence of that combination, where there were previously only unowned things, now there are things that are owned. Presumably they are owned by the person who committed the labor to combining them, to making them into certain things like clear land, houses, and all the rest of it. Of course, they could also be owned by the person who paid the person who did all that stuff, but that's sort of getting just a little bit further down the road in Locke's thinking, so no need to go into it right now. So if I fell a tree and I turned it into materials to build a house, and no one else owned any of those materials or the land which I, on which I built the house that resulted from those materials, then presumably I will end up owning both the finished product of the house and the land that was cleared to build it on. So in essence, in sum, natural resources plus human labor equal a thing that can be owned and is owned by whoever offered their labor. There used to be Things that were not owned, now there are things that are owned and thus have sort of entered into the sphere of civil society, the very most basic fundamental aspects of civil society that Locke is kind of detailing for us in his, in his conversation. And while all this may sound banal, Doctorow, in this article that I'm talking about, which by the way will end up in the show notes and for which I must thank great friend of the show at MT Thoughts on Twitter for pointing me in the direction of this because it's been very helpful, Doctor points out that this basic dynamic was used, modified slightly, but then used as a justification for seizing indigenous land across the globe. In essence, by saying that because the land was not being improved, quote unquote, improved by the indigenous people who lived on it, and yes, let's just pause and say that that idea is a profound and presumably often intentional misunderstanding of the way indigenous peoples typically relate to the land and the natural resources that they occupy. But setting aside the fact that we know this statement is not true, we see the basic dynamic of Locke being perverted into one of the founding crimes of imperialism, essentially by saying that because indigenous people 
didn't improve the land in the way that we Europeans were accustomed to because they weren't building houses and shopping malls and, and everything else because that's not the way they related to the land. That meant that they didn't really own it in any meaningful way. And that meant in turn that when we settlers, uh, imperialists, however, Europeans, however you want to call us, when we came and started devoting our labor to that same land, then it was ownable for the first time. Thus, we owned it, and thus we were justified in driving everyone else off of it by, you know, whatever means necessary. And while I obviously, I don't disagree with this observation on Doctorow's part whatsoever, I think it's a fantastic observation of how you take this idea and lock one of the foundational ideas of our entire view of civil society. You twist it just a little bit, you turn it just a little bit, the slightest perversion of that idea, and you have essentially a justification for one of the fundamental founding crimes of imperialism. Now, I should say, however, I don't think, and I don't think that Doctor was arguing, I don't think we can call Locke a violent imperialist because of, of the way his thinking was used in this case, but the fundamental point is we see that if these are the building blocks of civil society, we see how very easily they can be turned to create the what seemed at the time to be a perfect justification for what now, through the lens of history, we recognize as, as a sort of unimaginable historical crime that it was committed against many, many groups of people across the, the globe. Now, one of the pieces that I find hardest to reconcile with the rest of what we've discussed is the somewhat under-the-surface notion on Locke's part that we, meaning we, humankind, are inherently good, inherently directed toward justice and rationality. Now, again, I'm taking a bit of a liberty in making that claim about Locke, but I don't, I don't think it's a wild leap. The way Locke talks about our most quote-unquote natural state, that state of nature, wherein there is peace and equality and reason and, and really all the, the best possible aspects of humankind until, of course, there no longer is. Take that, that, that notion of man in the state of nature, our most natural essence being one wherein we are inclined toward goodness, equality, rationality, all the rest of it. Mix that up with, with the way he discusses Hooker's thinking, which is essentially by by positing the notion that the golden rule is, is sort of an inherent guiding principle that's just sort of baked into human nature. To me, those ideas, as well as others in Locke, but those are the two that we've highlighted so far, those ideas point to, to me, they point to this idea that we, that we see in Locke, we see Locke imagining humankind on a sort of natural upslope. So to, to put this in our terms, we'd say that Locke is claiming that not only is there a single rational path forward for both individuals and for societies as a whole, as we've discussed, but he's also saying that humankind is naturally inclined to always be moving in basically the right direction on that path. So we have a sort of true north, a homing sense of what direction we should be going. We are inherently creatures that progress. So we are, again, inherently always seeking to become more rational, more good, more equal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, presumably on both an individual and a societal level, though, of course, even Locke would say there are obviously hiccups and backward steps in this process are nonetheless as 
a creature we are sort of naturally driven in this kind of direction. Now, I've already told you that I find this basically incorrect and that I think it skews our view of ourselves in ways that can obscure what we as a species really should be doing to, to, to improve as a species and as communities and in civil society and as individuals. And just being wrong, uh, and that is to, if I'm right and therefore Locke is wrong, just being wrong in this way impacts Locke's overall system of thought, which of course is a problem and that's why we're discussing it. But I think we need to consider further unintended consequences here, just as we did when discussing Locke's notions of property. What happens when you take this idea of inherent goodness out of the context of a carefully considered philosophical view and drop it into a worldview? A vague, often emotional or attitudinal collection of sometimes contradictory and poorly considered ideas and notions, right? That's our kind of working definition of a worldview. If we continue to very rationally, rigorously rationally ask ourselves if humankind has an inherent drive toward goodness, we will certainly at some point have to ask ourselves if that same drive, in our view, applies to all people. And if it doesn't, then why doesn't it? What, why are some people accepted from that, that notion of inherent, an inherent drive toward goodness while other people are assumed to have it? Thus, when we get to the point of making that decision, we either must be very clear with ourselves on the fact that people, the, the people upon whom we are afflicting things like genocide, that they share the same promise of goodness and excellence that we do. So we either need to grant them that level of humanity while we are committing these awful acts upon them, or we have to decide that some people are formally worth more or less than others. Now, to be clear, neither of those are decisions that I want to make or that I would recommend. I simply raise it to illustrate the difference between the way we can very often begin to act and make assumptions based on aspects of our worldview that we have not fully consciously considered. So if you put this idea that we as human beings are sort of naturally driven toward goodness and perfection and, and the constant striving to be better and more rational, well, if you put that idea into a worldview rather than into a kind of rigorous rational consideration, well, I can simply then sort of take that idea that maybe I haven't given a lot of rational thought to, maybe I haven't tried to put it through any kind of ob objective logical process. I can just kind of carry that idea around with me as part of my worldview and just sort of say, hey, look, I'm generally this creature that's driven toward goodness. And, you know, I don't have to give the idea too much rational consideration. I simply use it to assume that most of my actions are more likely than not to be inherently good. So put differently, this idea of humankind having an inherent drive toward goodness can become yet another source of reflexive chauvinism, particularly if people do not assume that every human being is privy to the same consistently upward trend, but rather only those of us who look and act a certain way. So yet again, this is yet another aspect of this chauvinism that we keep coming back to that to my view is one of the many impulses that drives us towards things like imperialism and all these other awful things. So that, to me, is why when we look at Locke in this particular way, when we think about Locke in this historical context, 
when we think about this trend line from Locke through Mill and consider all of the history that surrounds it and all these other ideas of rational chauvinism that, that we've been discussing for all this time, what I hope we'll come away with from these last couple episodes within the context of this entire season is to understand how the basic building blocks that Locke is putting together for us here that will continue to be made use of through Mill's thinking and all the thinking in between, that you can take those building blocks, turn them just a little bit, pervert them just a little bit, not think them through uh, to the extent that you should. Whatever mistake is made, you can take these building blocks and very quickly pervert them into what we've been discussing as this kind of rational chauvinism, the European rational chauvinist worldview, if, you, if we want to get the whole title that we've sometimes been applying to it. So we see, again, in the entire arc of this thinking, whatever the intentions of these philosophers, and I don't think their intentions were bad, I just want us to understand how these fundamental foundational building blocks can so easily be turned into these kinds of impulses that perhaps did not create the institution of imperialism, but certainly helped to fuel it, certainly helped to justify it, and most certainly affected how that institution was implemented and how it ended up affecting the numerous peoples in the colonial and imperial territories that were essentially had this institution inflicted on them. So that was our purpose in all this. I hope that came through. And that should just about do it uh, for my little effort here to rain on Locke's uh, Happy Paradise Parade. But before we go, I just want to make a quick announcement. I need to take a couple weeks off to sort of catch up here. I thought I had this very comfortable margin of time to finish this next series of episodes I'm working on in time for it not to delay the show, but I was completely mistaken in that. Now, to be clear, you can sort of harken back to the last time I started talking about taking breaks. I'm genuinely only talking about taking a couple weeks off here. I have all this great stuff prepared. It's all ready to go. Just need to get a little extra time for the recording, the editing, putting some final pieces in place. So in the hopes that these are not uh, either famous last words or just annoyingly inaccurate words, I expect that you'll be hearing from me again uh, to continue this series in no time at all. I, I am thinking I will take two weeks off and we'll be right back into our normal, uh, our normal flow after that. In the nonce, if you have not already, you really should go check out the most recent episode of No Normal People. That's K-N-O-W, Normal People. Uh, though I, I will say, not to spo no spoiler alerts here, but there's a little bit of a double entendre built into that. But, you know, you, you'll see that all emerge as you, as you listen to this episode and hopefully a bunch of others. It's a, a fantastic podcast, and the most recent episode includes... Uh, yours truly. And for that, I, I really have to thank Stephen Henning and the folks at uh, Highline Media, who've just been so fantastic, extremely supportive of the show. I don't talk about them nearly enough, but definitely go check out the No Normal People podcast. In fact, don't even necessarily bother with mine because you hear me all the time. Maybe go back into their catalog a little bit, listen to all the other great folks that they've spoken with, uh, just some fantastic interviews. That will also lead you to discovering some of the other shows in the Highline Media Network. Please do check that out. Also, should you so desire, you can support this show in a variety of ways. You can visit afreedomofideas.com where you can find links to purchase uh, Freedom of Ideas branded merchandise, 
which I can say without fear of conflict is absolutely beautiful stuff because I didn't design the logo that we're using, although I'm so proud of it, I'm so pleased with it. You can also find a link at that same site to sponsor the show. Now, a small update on that sponsorship. I've spoken about it in the past. When you follow that sponsorship link to the Patreon site, there are three levels of possible support for the show. Each one of them is on a purely per-episode basis, so don't worry about the little breaks I keep taking. All the sponsors will receive access to occasional blog posts that I'm going to be making through Patreon. Now, mostly these are just going to be pre-show thoughts and notes and reactions to what I'm reading, but this will also give patrons the opportunity to interact with these ideas at these sort of formative stages. Now, for me, who loves feedback and loves being able to discuss these ideas, that's extremely exciting for me, and I'm hoping it's at least a little bit cool for you as well. Now, patrons also on the second and third tiers, they're also going to get a, a little gift, nothing big, no big deal, but a little gift from uh, their good friends over here at A Freedom of Ideas. It's, again, nothing very big, but it's, it's also something you can't get through the, the merch store itself. So a little unique little gem that you can hold on to there, which should be kind of fun. Finally, and I really should say, by far the most importantly, the most vital support I could possibly ask for you from you at this juncture is that you let folks know about this show. If you have friends who you think would enjoy what we do here, please do let them know. If you can take a moment to leave a review on any or all of the various uh, podcast platforms out there, of course, I'd love that as well. But more than anything, one way or the other, I, I just want to see uh, the show continue to grow. I've been so pleased with the number of folks that have, have uh, been following us on this little journey that we're on here. It's been really exciting to see those numbers grow. Of course, I'd love to see them keep growing uh, as we move forward. And with that... I will thank you as I always do, whether I say it or not, but I, I, I always feel it most sincerely. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. I would love to hear your thoughts on this show or on this series or, you know, really on, on whatever else. You can check me out uh, at A Freedom of Ideas on Twitter. You can get my email, which is words at A Freedom of Ideas. All that, again, you can, you can see through our website at afreedomofideas.com. But otherwise, I will see you next time in just a couple of short weeks. I'm looking forward to it.